Welcome to Our Hen House. This is Marianne Sullivan. And this is Jasmine Singer. And this week, Jasmine will be speaking with Carmela Lani, an amazing activist in Philadelphia. I think we all know, well, if you don't know, you should know, that Philly is known as a great destination for vegan food. Really, uh, just just really amazing restaurants in Philadelphia, which is not a huge city, but it has as good vegan food as any city in this country, I think. But it wasn't always that way. Carmela is one of the activists who helps to cultivate the plant-based abundance Philly is now known for by a pop-up events and Philly Vegan Restaurant Week. Yes, and she is kind of heroic to me, to be honest. So I'm super excited about sharing this interview with everyone. And I'm looking forward to hearing what you think. I lived in Philly in 97 and 98 when I was in college at the beginning of college. And then I transferred to New York City. Uh, But it was a very special place then. I was vegetarian then, not vegan. And so neither you nor Philadelphia were vegan at the time. Right. But it it it's fun to kind of remember what it was like before the vegan boom, because it that didn't exist then, of course. And now it's like everywhere. I think we actually recently talked about this uh, on the show and encouraged people to go to Philadelphia. So still go to Philadelphia. One note about the the sound is that I had we had a like every tech problem you can you can imagine Carmela and I had during this call. And so you're going to hear a difference in sound quality because like from the beginning to the end, because we had to change platforms twice. Actually, we were on three different platforms. Riverside is where we normally interview. And then we did Zoom. And then finally, I called her on the phone on this, you know, on our cell phones. And I recorded the call with this call recording software. Old school. Very yeah, old school. I know, I know. So I just want to say, I'm Is sorry. Is Philadelphia known for vegan food and a very, very backwards technology situation? <laughs> you know, it, it's funny because Philly is when I got my first uh, email address, which was Jazz Patty at AOL, and that was because I'm a big Patty Lapone fan. <laughs> I, I cannot believe that was your email address. Yeah, and and, and I, actually, I can t- I can totally believe that. My was your roommate email and I tried to get our phones hooked up when we got to college because we were in like an apartment, and they wouldn't hook it up because we were both seventeen. Still, we weren't we weren't eighteen. <laughs> So, so seventeen-year-olds aren't supposed to talk on the phone. Like they wouldn't set it up for a child. They didn't trust you, yeah. They didn't trust you, yeah. So anyway, it feels like a many, many moons ago. I mean, it was, but uh, actually, yeah, that's because it was a really long time ago, Jasmine. Yeah. To be honest, last week feels like a really long time ago. I just want to kind of acknowledge that this has been an impossibly difficult week for a lot of people. I have been undone, and I don't want to talk about it on our handouts because it's not what we do here. But I did want to acknowledge it and sort of put that out there that, that people are suffering. My heart is going out to all of you who are. And now I feel like we can move on. But if I'm not my normal chipper self, that might be why. Yeah, I think we're all we're all affected by the, the state of the world this week. Yeah. Well, the one thing that does cheer me up, as always, is rising anxieties. And I did enjoy that we chatted about it at the top of the show last week. So let's keep that going because it really does lighten my mood. I'm serious. It, it's it's fun. Even though it, a lot of it's very dark, uh, I think turning around something dark like animal agriculture to highlight 
like how ridiculous they are, can be very enjoyable for us. Our, our first article this week actually isn't from Animal Agriculture. It's from Sentient Media, our friends at Sentient Media, and specifically by Jessica Scott-Reed, who was recently on the on the podcast. She's a terrific Canadian reporter who gets stories placed in all sorts of major outlets, uh, but and also writes for Sentient Media. And she's talking about a subject that we actually talked about a bit last week, and that is the, the growing vacation amusement park (laughs) situation in factory farming and animal agriculture. It is hard to believe, but yeah, it's true. She, so she and her daughter visited the Bruce D Campbell farm and food discovery center. This is in Manitoba. It boasts 540 hog farms in Manitoba and 3.3 billion hogs. And, and, you know, this is an effort to make it look like a lot of fun. It's hands-on for children of all ages, a place to explore the way food is grown, raised, and made in Canada. Wow. This is what we're facing. And I think it's really important to remember the theme of rising anxieties. The reason they're doing this is because of us. The reason they're doing this is because they're scared. And I think that, and, and Jessica points out a lot of this in here too, these places are both to be deceptive in that they're much, much nicer than any factory pharmacy you can imagine. Because uh, if they took people into real factory farms, they would pass out from the misery and grief. So they're much, much nicer. But at the same time, they're enculturating uh, this, this, the ideas, the, the ideas. Some of the things she said, um, industry representatives tell us about warm barns where hens enjoy living shoulder to shoulder, farrowing pens that provide sows comfort and privacy, and stories about natural life cycles that end with figaries like processing and going to market. Though, what is natural about going to market? You know, piggies, they go to market. We used to say it on our toes. As somebody I saw on Twitter the other day pointed out, she was horrified to find out when she got older that that didn't mean that the piggies were going to market to go like buy stuff and have a good day. Uh, It was much into her adulthood that she found out that going to market for a pig is a very different situation. Wow. So yeah, this place is is horrifying. Good for Jessica going there for her vacation. Well, no, you're not for her whole vacation, but to root out some of these like open farm days. And you know, she points out open farm days are not a new thing, but they've become a very corporatized, very planned, very deceptive thing. And they're they're you know their purpose is to respond to the growing animal rights movement. That's how why they were invented. Yeah, great article indeed, criticizing the open farm days and other initiatives that that present this like sanitized, misleading view of the agriculture industry. And it we need that. You know, this is why this is why I love media. It contrasts it with the harsh realities that undercover investigators and activists are working so hard to to show us. So I really appreciate. Thank you for writing it. Let me just grab a few quotes out of here. This guy from Tyson Foods made recommendations. There are parts of farming that the industry wants the public to see, and then there's the rest. Quote from from this guy from uh, Tyson Foods, using signs that say authorized personnel only will help keep people out of specific barns or areas. Yeah, no shit. Well, actually, loads and loads of shit. People want to know how animals are raised, but they want reassurance that this is done in a sustainable and safe way. Okay, they want to be lied to. That's basically what they're saying here. And that's exactly what is help happening. She's talking about this pig barn that she went to 
where the powering crates were all empty, even though that's where they're generally kept, and the animals were all healthy and walking around, maybe a little bored. It wasn't perfect. But, you know, this all enculturates people to the idea that that's all that animals need. And she talks about fair oaks, too, which is the one in the U.S., and which is the, you know, the granddad, as she calls it, the Disneyland of agriculture. And uh, that's where Fair Oaks milk, well, of course, Fair Oaks milk is made in a lot of different places. It's produced in a lot of different places, but that's where it, it's, it's centerpiece where they, where they just bring the tourists in and make it cute and funny and, and cheesy and uh, all this shit. It's just, it's just horrifying. Yeah. It, it's not that dissimilar from this article that you found in Pork Business that says it's called, No, He's Not a Buffalo why we can't avoid their questions anymore. And it it starts with a 20-year-old asking if this animal uh, at at the Hall of Champions part of the Illinois State Fair is a buffalo. And the person writing the article, Jennifer Scheich, said no. She tried not to laugh and said, this is a steer. And this article goes on to be like this sort of like tongue-in-cheek tongue-in-cheek description of why it's so horrible how people are so disconnected from from animal agriculture that they don't even know what kind of animal this was. I, I was kind of grossed out by by this article. All these articles are are are, are gross. There's no doubt about that. And and the the grand champions of various livestock they're displayed for eight days, and it's supposed to be like an educational opportunity for for the public. Uh, and the author is basically listing a lot of the questions they receive to illustrate the lack of knowledge. Yeah, and to illustrate, you know, what she thinks is the best way to respond. And and she does like to point out that they were in the Hall of Champions at the Illinois State Fair because, you know, apparently they're really great at what they do. Uh, And her son was fortunate to exhibit the Grand Champion Market Barrow. And, you know, we're all supposed to know what that means. And uh, she does point out that, you know, she tries to say, bring it back and say, I'm not making fun of these people. Of course, they don't know. If it was about baseball, I wouldn't know. But she says that, okay, these are the Hall of Champions. This isn't real agriculture. I know. I know that. But this is what she then goes on to make clear. She's not telling any of these visitors who are disturbed. And she kind of is pretending to all of them, this is what agriculture looks like. This is really interesting. I think this is just a fascinating little glimpse into what's going on here. But the biggest question I got time and time again was this one. What happens to these animals after the fair? So obviously people who come in who are not familiar with agriculture, they see real animals, they connect with these real animals, but they they're worried about these animals. I don't know whether they're, you know, of course, they're not worried about the big picture because that's how people are, but but they see an animal, they worry about them. She was told to answer, it's up to the buyer's discretion and, and not to say any more than that. But she didn't, she hadn't gotten that memo. So she thought she should give a real answer. And the real answer is kind of unbelievable. It's hard, I said, and it really doesn't get easier. Our kids are out in the barn from sunrise to sunset with their animals. The older our kids get, the more time they spend out there because they love it so much. But they understand the important purpose of their market animals, and we provide them with a good life. 
because she made her kids to the, to, right. um, <laughs> they receive top veterinary care, nutritious feed, and a high quality environment. Yeah, bullshit. Are you telling them that it's like, this is bullshit. These animals are not raised the same way that, that animals are raised for food. Do you make that clear? How do your kids do it? She's asked. They love animals and they love providing care for their animals. They consider it an important responsibility. But they also have had to learn that these production animals don't live forever. Because we slit their throats, it's hard to live forever when somebody slits your throat. Well, they shouldn't say that part. We focus on providing them with the best life possible while they are here. Like all farmers do. Bullshit. Bullshit. Animals are not provided with the best life possible. So it's this combination of deception and enculturation of deception because these aren't the conditions that ordinary animals uh, raised for food are, live in. It's totally deceptive. These animals who are raised for the show ring are, are totally in a different situation. They're, you know, with these kids. And, and then the enculturation, this idea that this is what this is what is appropriate and it's appropriate to kill animals. And that's what we all do. I it, They drive me crazy. Wow. Yeah, it, it's really gross. But like, trying to spin it into something good for our house. Like, do you, do you feel like the kind of silver lining here is that she's backbending a lot and that the youth are very clearly in the know and maybe there's hope in that? Well, I think that's going a little far, but, but okay. I do think, I mean, the reason I think it's a rising anxiety that we should be pleased about is the fact that she had to, to write it. The fact that she is asked these questions, the fact that people are troubled, the fact that they have to come, the fact that they have to lie is good. Yeah. And they lie all the time. Well, because the people, if she, what, imagine if she told the truth, like what, what would these kids who are coming to the fair be thinking? You know, if she told the truth and it's not just these, uh, these show animals, you have to think about how, how animals that you actually eat are, are treated. And that's much, much worse than this. And, and uh, then we slit their throats when they're really like, if she went through the whole story of actually what was going on, I think people would be a little freaked out. Yeah. Well, I think that they're going to be freaked out if they're having chicken nuggets anytime soon. They should be anyway. They're horrifying. I mean, the chicken nuggets to me are like, among the most disgusting animal products and they just got spookier than the harsh reality of what's already going on for them. That's completely terrifying because according to Watt Poultry, Tyson's Halloween nuggets are finally available in stores. Halloween nuggets. Uh, so that's the the last story we're going to be talking about today. And it's, it's basically exactly what you think it is. It's it's nuggets shaped like little ghosts and goblins. And it's talking about how there needs to be a wider availability of it. There's significant excitement. They're talking about having not only expanding the retailers nationwide, but maybe potentially theming other nuggets, speculating that given the success of these spooky nuggets, maybe there's an opportunity for heart-shaped ones for Valentine's Day, for example. I mean... I can't even believe they don't already have heart-shaped nuggets for Valentine's Day. Like, they're really missing out there. Yeah, I mean, it's just... Of course, the the main theme of this was the return of Spooky Nuggets. But as we know, Spooky Nuggets, they never went anywhere in the first place. Oh, nicely said. Nice little turnaround there. 
Yeah, this is gross. You know, they pretend that they have respect for the animals, and then they turn their bodies into these little uh, toys to like deceive children about what they're actually eating and act like they're not eating animals at all. And you know why they're doing that? Why? Because their anxieties are rising. Well, I sure hope so. Their anxiety will be rising a whole lot more after they hear the interview with Carmela. Yeah, Carmela will save us all. That's what I'm counting on for sure. So Carmela Lani is co-owner of V-Marks the Shop, which operated Philadelphia's first all-vegan convenience store, proudly a Black and queer-owned business. She is also the creator of Philly Vegan Pop Flea, Philly Vegan Events, hosting vegan-centric community pop-up markets and events since 2016. She is also one of the co-organizers of Philly Vegan Restaurant Week, Philadelphia's premier vegan restaurant week, launched in 2018, founded by Nicole Koitiker. Her background includes over 20 years in digital commerce, working as an analyst and consultant to small businesses and Fortune 500 companies. She believes that business can be compassionate and community connecting all year round. A native of Bronx, New York, Carmelo enjoys baking, watching anime and crime dramas, pulling tarot cards, making playlists and hanging with cats. Gee, I, I don't like any of those things except hanging with cats, but I got you there, Carmela. And she will be joining Jasmine right after this. Remember when we came to you with the fabulous news that Dr. Bronner's, the ethical personal care company that we all know and totally love, was making chocolate? Well, now we have some even more exciting news to add to that. This fall, Dr. Bronner's is adding three flavors of oat milk chocolate to their magic all-one chocolate line. That makes 10 total flavors of ethically produced vegan chocolate goodness. The new flavors are crunchy hazelnut butter, creamy mocha latte, and golden milk chai. Oh my God, I cannot wait to try all of them, though I personally am most excited about the creamy mocha latte because mocha and I, we go way back. The new oat milk chocolate flavors will be available on the Dr. Bronner's website and at select retailers nationwide beginning October 24th, 2023. These will be absolutely the perfect autumn treat. If you want to learn more about Dr. Bronner's magic all-one chocolate line, head over to drbronner.com. That's www.drbronner.com to find out more about the sourcing, ingredients, and production of the magic all-one chocolate line and try it out for yourself. Welcome to our henhouse, Carmela. Thank you. Appreciate you having me on. Yeah, I've really been looking forward to chatting. I know you have so much happening right now, and I want to be able to talk about as much of it as we possibly can. But to start, we've known each other for a very long time, but I need to get caught up on the story of how you went from a food blogger in New York City to owning a pop-up vegan store in Philly. And I'm sure that's a long story, but like, tell me the highlights, because I'm very curious what that trajectory looked like. Oh, I've been vegan 13 years, and I always had this idea of starting a business. And my partner, Carlo, wanted to start a business. He comes from a food background. So we went back and forth, and he decided he wanted to do a grocery store. 
And we were at Vita Vegan Con, the last one in Austin, Texas, in 2015. The last session, they were talking about business, and he got up in front of everybody and said, we are opening up a vegan grocery store, and it's going to be in Philadelphia. And I'm like, what? So he's like, well, you know, it's not going to happen. And I'm like, uh, okay. Because not only was I a food blogger, I also had a career in digital commerce and IT. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So that was, that was a a huge pivot. And the only thing to have a vegan business is I've been vegan and been definitely on the radar, but not like that. As I am with a lot of things, if there's a passion project, I'm going all in. And so that's kind of what happened. Went all in and moved to Philly and opened up V-Marks the Shop. And Well, I mean, we were doing V-Marks the Shop as a pop-up since 2015, but we opened up the storefront in 2018. So, yeah, and now the store is not a store anymore. Not a brick and mortar store, I should say, but it is a pop-up again. So briefly tell me, like, what was that like? You you had a store. I, I went to it this past summer. I just put on my chapstick from your store and now it is no more. So are you able to share a little bit about that with us? Yeah. Well, you know, we got through the brunt of COVID, but there was a lot of challenges because the way that people shopped had gone quite differently. And we tried our best to pivot and then we ran into a lot of issues on the personal side. So I was actually out for nine months of 2022. <laughs> I, I had a lot of health issues that kept me out. Actually, even before that, from towards the end of 2021. And trying to get caught back up was so difficult. And even the end of 2020, it was rough because we both got COVID right during the Christmas period. So trying to rebuild, we actually had some good points, which carried us probably into early June. And it just felt like the bottom fell out. And at some point we're like, we we can't keep going like this. And so we had to make the decision to close the storefront. But the thing that I always loved about the business model that we have is being very community oriented. And we started the business as community-based project hosting different events. So we did a vegan mac and cheese competition for four years. We did a vegan chili cook-off. We did vegan pop-up markets that we hosted and plus also vended at. But the ones that we hosted, we did that for over four years and we just broke that back this summer. And it just gets us to connect with people, small businesses, plus the local community, whether they're vegan or not, to understand the contribution of vegan businesses to the local economy. So since we've closed the storefront, we're pivoting back into the community-based event as a way to support not just the vegan community, but the small business community at large to give them a place to get in front of customers and to build their brand. So you're back to that. Tell me about the mechanics of doing a pop-up store. Like, how, how do you arrange where to pop up? And how do you store your merchandise and get it there? What am I not even thinking of? I don't. I have no idea. I just realized as I'm talking to you how much I've taken this for granted in the past when I've gone to pop-ups. Yeah, so definitely trying to find the right venue, working with the venues to understanding what kind of licenses we may need or there needs to be somebody coming in from like the city to do any kind of health and food inspection kind of thing. So that's a huge peak because that goes into the cost. And then you're also having to keep in mind things like marketing and apps. And if there's a way, like, for instance, you know, being in Philly, 
It's a major city. Parking is at a premium. So if there's anything that could help, especially the business owners, stay here or, you know, cut down their costs when it comes to paying parking fees, we try to do that. So there's a lot of moving pieces, working in like the timing. How do people load in? Where do people set up developing a fort plan? A lot of parts to it. And then also on my end in particular is that I have to vet everybody. So whoever applies, it's not just you pay a fee and you show up. I actually vet everybody. So I want to see like they're following. I want to see their product. There's always the honey debate when it comes to food or even beauty product with beeswax and honey. Like, oh, I sell vegan products. It's like, okay, well, I need to understand your ingredient list. I need to make sure that these certain things are not in there. So Carmela, given everything you just said, are most of your customers vegan? Because it sounds like you have some possible sellers who are a little bit ignorant, but who's coming to the pop-ups? It's actually a a healthy mix. (laughs) It is a healthy mix. There are a Mm -hmm. lot of people who are curious about vegan. There are people who like certain vendors. So... They may not necessarily be vegan, but they already like this company or their products, so they're showing up to support. And then the vegan community is coming out for a vegan event. So it's really is a nice mix. If I had to pull, like do a sample, I would say close to 50% of them are not vegan. Wow. That's fascinating to me. I love that, though, so much. And why did you feel that vegan retail was the right direction for your activism and for your lives? Um, I think partly because of our backgrounds. And then the other part of it is, you know, being a consumer (laughs) and not wanting to have to jump through so many hoops to find Mm -hmm. vegan products. It's a lot easier than it was when we first started the business, just because how much veganism has grown. But, you know, there was a time that I would have to shop at like four or five stores just to get all the groceries that I wanted. Yeah. You know, beyond produce, you know, or having to constantly have to look at labels. Allergies are one thing, but if you don't have an allergy and you just want to find Mm -hmm. vegan products, having to read labels is quite tiresome. I wanted to create a space where you can spend more time getting to know a brand than having to read the label for like specific ingredients. That's an interesting point. I remember the days of having to go to multiple stores in order to just have enough for for dinner. But as it becomes easier to locate vegan products everywhere, why should people be shopping at and supporting vegan owned businesses specifically? Well, part of it is that we don't have like a massive, you know, major corporate vegan entity for shopping, right? So right now it's about making sure that those that are in the movement are aligned with the values. And I think that's why it's really important to support as many vegan small businesses as possible. Granted, I mean, we're in a capitalist society, so there's always going to be maybe a couple of those businesses that aren't so much aligned with the ethics. But it's the clear fact that if you view veganism as a form of activism, that you would want to ensure that while we're in a capitalist society, that your money is going to support that movement. And that's why it's important to support vegan businesses. Yeah, I agree with that. I try really hard, even when I can get it at my local Whole Foods or whatever, I try really hard to patronize vegan businesses. Now, can you talk a little bit about the big picture and the importance of 
food security and accessibility and how that relates to your work? Because I know that's a really big driving force for you. Yes. One of the biggest things, and it's not even just in terms of like pre-packaged or packaged items or whatever, but it's access to quality food. It's so huge. And then you've got the vegan tax. (laughs) And when people are shopping and they're looking at a non-vegan item versus a vegan item, most of the time, the vegan item is more expensive because it's usually a smaller business has less distribution, higher production costs, and really depends on volume that's going to bring the the cost down. And a lot of people don't see that. And there are a lot of people who want to go vegan and they're scared because they're worried about it hitting them in the pocket. And, And based on the current economy, that's even more so. And we're talking about how many cities and towns now have community based fridges, trying to ensure that their neighbors have access. Mm And it's not just the average person. We're talking about access based on age because a lot of elderly folks, their funds are limited and they're not able to get quality in some areas. Those people, you know, family size also impacts. Being able to have the store that was able to accept EBT was huge for us. To ensure that people can get good quality products without them hurting their pockets, that it's fully accessible to them is really important. And if we're talking about being in a system that's oppressive and we're trying to push for liberation for everybody, food security and food justice has to be a part of that discussion because there is so much power that is given up by us as individuals that we're not even aware of half the time in terms of how we're able to access food and how stores get set up in our neighborhoods. Yeah, well said. It's not an easy process. And, you know, having to be subjected to a lot of time major corporations deciding our prices, it's tough. So wanting to ensure that everybody has equal access is really important. And when we're looking, again, looking at it from a vegan lens, if we're talking about liberation for all beings, that has to be part of the discussion. That is very well said, Carmela. I think that there's been at least some recognition by many within the vegan movement of the importance of intersectionality. But can you discuss how that needs to be an ongoing endeavor and not just a flash in the pan? Oh, yes. (laughs) You know, again, we're going back to the point of veganism being a, a movement where we're looking for liberation for all beings. And we're also looking at it being a stance of living the most compassionate lifestyle with the least amount of harm. And you can't have veganism be specious. It has to be about everybody. And when I'm talking about everybody, we have to look at all the points from culture, all the socio-political concepts, socioeconomic concepts. We We have to look at it across the board. If we exclude one, we're really excluding all. And I think that's a point that is often missed. So if we're talking about a movement that is based on compassion, you cannot leave out certain groups because you don't like them or you don't feel they're a part of it. And there's people that don't agree with that thought. There are people that look at veganism as just being about non-human animals, but you cannot have a movement about non-human animals without humans being involved. And you can't push a movement forward to support non-human animals unless you have a connection made with humans (laughs) to keep it moving. And so a lot of times that point is missed. And it's kind of far to me as to why, but it is missed for a lot of people. 
Well, I should add, I think some of it comes from a place of privilege because when you don't have to think about other groups and you can have a singular lens, that's privilege. Whereas somebody that grew up seeing the struggles of various people, they have a different lens and they understand that I can't just have a singular view on the world. I have to have a more, I guess, global, worldly. I know when you say that, that people look at that as negative, but you, you actually do have to have more of a world view in order to understand that there's more to a movement than just the one piece. Yeah, totally. You know, it's so funny this morning before I interviewed you, you know, I was doom scrolling and I came across this funny meme that said, I've done so much self-growth that I now hate every person or something like that. And I (laughs) chuckled to myself because it's hard. And I would love your take on this because you're a person who deals with human beings all the time and you're doing something that's very positive and uplifting and you're leveraging the voices of a lot of people and their businesses. But with that comes the flip side, the dark side. So how do you manage all of the let's call it intricacies of humankind, given the fact that humans can also just be so completely closed off to understanding the ways that they're contributing to various types of oppression? Oh man, that's a deep question. (laughs) It it is something because if you're an empathetic person, you take it pretty hard. And so you have to kind of work your way to not be like, okay, this is rough, but it's it's not personal. And we have to understand, again, there's a lot of things about society that I might not agree with. And then other people don't always agree with me. And trying to find points where there's common ground that you can work through things, that gives me some hope. <laughs> not all is lost. I think mm-hmm. that's why the community aspect is so important. Totally, totally true. So I just, I have to tell you that I am feeling sometimes like I'm doing a disservice to the Our Hen House listeners because I promised them indefatigable positivity early on. And lately, I just feel like everything is really bringing me down, including the fact that people are still consuming animals in just as big, actually a bigger way than they had previously, even though there are more and more amazing vegan products available. Can you just like, I'm not asking you to fix my despair, but can you weigh in on that? And just like, I'm very curious how you deal with this, given the fact that you see people all the time. I think it's about being a realist. Yes, we would love to have everything 100% positive, but I think being a realist that can come up with some solutions is the more optimal (laughs) way to go. It it is disheartening to see that people are still consuming animals. And at times it feels like, you know, we're so far away from this vegan world, which a lot of us watch. But I think also we have to be realistic and look at the things that have gotten us to where we are now. Yes, there are a lot more vegan products out there. I have to get to a point that I think in some categories there's an oversaturation of vegan products. But the fact is that when I was vegan 13 years ago, most of this stuff wasn't around. So Mm -hmm. I have to look at that as a win, right? We have to look at our individual contributions to the movement. And are there areas where we can do better? Absolutely. Absolutely. But what have we done up to this point that is positive and recognizing that? 
So, I mean, these times are rough. So we have to be honest about that. These times are rough. The way people come into veganism is varied. Some come into it from an environmental abuse. Some come into it because it just it piques their interest because maybe their friend lost some weight on a vegan diet and they want to try it for themselves. So it's like, okay, well, we understand that people come at different points, so how do we meet these people where we're at? And we may have to pivot our, our, our not our viewpoint, but our approach to those different audiences so that things that we say they do resonate. And I think that's where we can find the hope and we can find the positivity if we learn to be a little bit more honest about where we're at as a movement and that people are coming from different walks of life. And so we have to address them differently. Mm-hmm. And if we're kind of come at people to show, hey, this is, again, it's a kind of passionate lifestyle. How to connect with that is a little different than saying, I'm just going to tell you I'm vegan, I'm in your face. And there's a lot of people that are still coming at that mindset that vegans are all militants and we're all in your face and we're all telling you have to, you have to stop doing this, you have to do It's like, yeah, well, it's different now. <laughs> it's very yeah. different now. And I think it's also growing pains within the vegan movement itself. I think any movement has growing pains in terms of, you know, how the movement develops how people were connected to it. And when there are more people involved, you know, there is some truth in too many cooks in the kitchen. There is some truth in that statement because there's a lot more people, there's a lot more personalities, there's a lot more touch points. Mm-hmm. So it's mm-hmm. like, child, okay, where, where do I fit in? I don't have to take on everything. Maybe there's a certain aspect that I can connect with people on. Right. Or a certain focus. What is the movement for me to focus on? We don't have to do everything. So you chose food as your direction, and I'd love to know a little bit more about your theory of change, which is something we've been talking about more and more here on our hen house. Like, tell me about where this leads to, in your opinion. In other words, what is the role of the products that you make available between that and animal liberation? Like, connect those dots for me. So for me, having greater access, especially when it's smaller makers, is really a means of promoting liberation for all because I look at it as, in a way, fighting capitalism from within. So if we're going to try to push a social movement within a capitalist society, we've got to fight from within it. And so, I mean, I'm a little bit anti-corporate. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, having more of those products out there and getting them in front of people, it's like, hey, there's an alternative. I want you mm-hmm. to connect with people within your community, whether it's a local community or a movement community. And here's a way to do that. And you can also help, again, show the contributions of these makers to your local economy. And having more of these products that are out there, that means, you know, the shift in resources and less use of animal-based products and materials and, and whatnot. You know, some of the way that these products are created, it could actually help the environment. It helps, again, helps the local community. And if you're talking about who the makers are, it helps connect with their people in their communities, cultures, races, religions, whatever, age, whatever. So it can have a broader impact overall for the movement by just demonstrating what those contributions can mean long and short term. Mm-hmm. That's a, I love that way of looking at it. It's a very holistic and community-minded way of looking at it. I, I'm grateful that you're able to contextualize things in new ways. But now let's talk about the food 
products themselves because although I'm not a foodie, I do really enjoy learning about what's popular, what is popular in terms of the products that you're selling at your pop-ups. I mean, the biggest categories have always been the vegan cheeses and the vegan meats. (laughs) And vegan chocolate. Those have always been the biggest categories. And I think that just kind of, I think that's how it is in food, to be perfectly honest, is food in general. Mm -hmm. Um, You got your sweet, you got your savory, and people are very much about protein. And I think that's more of a Western societal thing about how you pay for protein. And having those three categories in particular in the vegan business sphere, food industry, people are looking for alternatives to what they see in the mainstream. And so if you're seeing people talking about, you know, meat and I need meat to live and all that stuff, well, then there's people that are interested in plant-based. Okay, well, how can I get that in a plant-based form? Well, let Mm -hmm. me show you. So having those as examples and demonstrating them is really important. Now, the thing that we're seeing is because vegan has become a trend in the food industry. If you look at various market reports and such, vegan has become a trend over the last five years. And seeing the amount of products that have grown and are being now displayed and now you're seeing they're in the major corporate supermarkets, that's great. But there is an issue of oversaturation and, and an issue of lack of differentiation. I mean, last year, I can't tell you how many different vegan chicken products there were. And I couldn't tell you the difference between them. I mean, how many chicken nuggets can there be? You know? And a lot of these companies are really working towards developing brand loyalty versus quality of product. Yeah. Yeah, I totally agree. I'm also, like, another thing that excites me is the like the fact that there are so many more things that can be turned into protein. I'm not talking about cultivated meat, although that's a whole other conversation, which I am excited about. But I mean, like when I went vegan 20 years ago, like there was TVP, of course, which I still eat in the form of soy curls. But there are so many more mushroom meats now. I've had like meats made out of banana leaves. And it's just amazing the fact that like it's the texture and the taste that have been replicated in so many ways like what about you what are you most excited about personally i mean i am excited about food tech in general i like Mm -hmm. seeing how more natural ingredients are being used to create these replacements you know and understanding that this is what's happening with the technology goes of course things are going to be of a higher cost and might be cost prohibitive for folks so you know, the hope is that the technology takes off and there's enough volume to help start bringing the cost down. In terms of what I'm excited about, you know, it's weird. I get excited more on the smaller brands <laughs> than, than anything. So I just want to see, like, something unique come out of, you know, what are you doing that's so different? Where, you know, it could be like a different type of jerky. I know we've seen the mushroom jerkies, we've seen jackfruit jerky, banana jerky, you know. I get excited when it's something different. And I feel at the time it's, it's becoming further like something completely different where I feel like a lot of people that are trying to do more of that brand loyalty, create the same product and let me build a brand fan base and 
get my my growth that way. I think that's also a testament to what we're seeing, like even in social media, a lot of it is about brand loyalty, building that way and impulsivity. So people like, yes, there is this thing about being first to market. There's definitely that, but it's like, how quick can I get it is more important than that. So it's a little bit difficult for me now to be excited about something because I see so much of the same type of product. Yeah, I could I could see that. But Philly, you're in Philly, which has a famously vibrant vegan scene. What are some of the products being produced locally that you're able to feature? So a lot of it's coming out of like small makers or bakeries or already established restaurants. I'll tell you, like one of the products I really like, we sold it for a minute at the store, is this beet ketchup that comes from Algorithm Grill and Food Trucks. And it's really good, and it doesn't taste like beef. It's a really nice alternative. I'm a huge fan of this gummy candy called Blob. They're very unique flavors, and the founder of the company is originally from South Philly. He actually grew up down the street from the store. That's a good one. I love seeing stuff like uh, Amira's Delight. She's amazing. She does, like, a bunch of farmer's markets and stuff, but her cinnamon rolls are amazing. <laughs> and there's a lot. There's more, like, so we start running into people, and, you know, there's people that do, like, vegan puddings. There's people that who are not vegan, but they've added vegan to their product line because they know there's a demand. And it's not just, you know, for some people, yes, I'm jumping on a trend, but there are people that may have a connection because maybe a family member has gone vegan and they want to create something to support that family member. So learning those stories is really good. But, yeah, there's a a lot. There's, like, Milk John doing vegan ice cream in South Philly. Their stuff is really good. Plus, Bakery starting to do some stuff out of their shop with their ice cream. So that's exciting. Tutu Mary's, which is out of Tattooed Mom which is like the classic fun dive bar in Philly. Tutu Mary's is an offshoot where they do vegan Hawaiian-inspired food. Wow, that sounds so good. Yeah, and the stuff that they're creating is fantastic. So that I get excited about. Yeah, no, I am too. You're getting me, you're definitely (laughs) bringing me out of my rut. Tell us about Philly Vegan Restaurant Week. So Philly Vegan Restaurant Week, this is the brainchild of Nicole Kodiker back in 2018. She was frustrated by what was going on in the local restaurant weeks where there really wasn't much of a vegan option. And we were in a Facebook group and she's like, who would like to help me create a, a Philly Vegan Restaurant Week? And so about five of us got together and we did our first one. <laughs> And it was a hit, and we think we had about 30 or so restaurants participating. And what happens during that week is that various restaurants either offer a special fixed-price menu or they do individual items. Originally, it was a portion of sales were going to go to a nonprofit, but instead we switched it up this year where the restaurant makes a donation to the selected nonprofit. So this year it's Philly Food Rescue, which is part of the Share Food program that is here in Philly. And what Philly Food Rescue does is they work with local businesses and restaurants and such 
to take the excess food and then they will deliver it to a point where they need to create access. So it could be a community fridge, it could be a soup kitchen, it could be a church, after school program, anywhere that's going to use that food right away. First year was Peace Advocacy Network. I think second year we did Misfit Manor. During the brink of COVID, we just raised money for the restaurants for their staff. And having people go out and supporting the vegan options at various places is huge. And most of the participants are not vegan restaurants because you don't have that many vegan restaurants in the city. I mean, the number has gone up, of course, over the years. But, you know, I'm starting there weren't that many vegan restaurants in the area. Yeah, I mean, I, I lived in Philly. It was the in the 90s when I was in college before I went to New York City. And, of course, it was, like, lost on me. I was vegetarian. <laughs> but then when I started going back, oh, my God. And Vicky from our henhouse, who I know you're good friends with, she lives there. I'm constantly living vicariously through what she eats. Like, it's amazing there. I just want to encourage our listeners to go to Philly on vacation. It's totally worth it. The food scene alone is worth it. And so many places have embraced vegan options because there's a clear demand for it. And... People are showing up to support. So having something like a restaurant week actually is great because, why? it helps Mm -hmm. boost the economy. It makes it really a bit of a destination point because there are people who travel that come for fully vegan restaurant week. The other part of it is that it gives support to these businesses who it might be their first time trying to add a vegan option to their menu. It's helping them get visibility. It's helping them build another target audience. There's been a lot of the participants that because of Restaurant Week, they now have actually a vegan menu. So it's something that just to kind of see how it's been built up over the last five years has been phenomenal. So we're getting ready for the fall edition of this year because we did spring. The fall edition is going to be November 1st through November 12th. So we're doing more than a week. We're making sure the restaurants get two weekends to get in front of customers. And like I mentioned, in order to participate, they do have to make a donation to Philly Food Rescue in order to be a confirmed participant. And then we list everything on the website at phillyvrw.com. People can check out menus once we have that up later up this month, and that can help them plan. I don't know if we're going to – we did a map before. I think we'll probably do a map again. So people can kind of plan out their time. Mm -hmm. And now they have more days to try more places. That's awesome. That's so exciting. I want to go. That's <laughs> <laughs> no, really cool. I made the mistake, though, one year trying to hit, like, six places in one day. <laughs> oh, my God. I went from breakfast to dessert. And I'm like, That's freaking awesome, Carmela. It's, like, my dream. Seriously. And then Truly. one year, I, I got friends together, and we did a food crawl. Oh. I don't know how many places we hit. But it was more the places that were doing the individual menu items. We could try a little bit before going on to the next place. Do you you remember that movie with Queen Latifah? It's like a Christmas movie, and she's diagnosed with cancer with, like, less than a month to live or something. But in that time, she decides to spend all her money and go do all of these extremely fancy things. Mm -hmm. This, like, you're describing what I would do. Like, that's what I would do. I would just be like, okay, I have a month to live. I'm going to go to Philly, and I'm going to eat my heart out, and I'm just going to eat everything and not worry about the paycheck. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. I would would be like that when I would travel. Yeah. So, you know, I haven't really, I've 
I haven't done much travel, like, the last couple of years, but I would, like, last year I went to, I was in Portland for a couple of days, and I was in Seattle for a couple of days. While I was in Portland, I was, like, I was, where are the places I have not been to since my last visit, and I made sure I hit them up. And so I had my little list, wow. <laughs> and uh, I was like, Carla, we have to go here, 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 and here. Here's where we're going to first, and this place isn't far from here. I, I mapped out everything. And I was so excited because I hadn't done that in a while. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, that's awesome. By the way, small aside, it's so cute that your name is Carmela and your partner's name is Carlo. Like, is that why you're with each other? Because it's like alliteration? I don't know how it was brought up. His dad's name is Carmelo. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Seriously? It's wild. His dad goes as Carl. But his his real name is Carmelo. Yeah, so it's just kind of weird how that all that all happened. And our niece's name is Carly. That's so funny. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. I love that. Well, I hope you'll stick on with me for a few minutes for your bonus content. But, Carmela, it's just a joy to speak with you. And I'm sorry about the tech problems we had. Uh, but so if people are listening to this and they're like, why is the sound quality changing? It's because we had to go through every way of recording possible. But now yeah. we have, But because we're on the phone recording this, I kind of forgot I was interviewing you. And I just thought, like, we were chatting because I don't have my headphones on. I'm not sitting in front of my computer. So I just want you to know everything you're doing is so friggin' exciting to me. And I appreciate so much your ethos and your attitude and, like, all of the joy and vegan food you put on this planet and in front of people. So thank you and Carla both so very much for all that you're doing. Oh, thank you. And I've always respected you and everything that you've done. So... I'm just glad we're friends. Yeah, so am I. Can you tell our listeners where they can find out more about your and Carlo's work? Sure. You can follow us, bmarksandshop.com. On social media, it's all bmarksandshop, B-M-A-R-K-S-T-H-E-S-H-O-P. Fabulous. Well, thank you so much for spending time with us today, but just everything you've shared with us today, it feels really powerful, and I appreciate you. I appreciate you as well. Thank you for having me. Well, that's it for our show. As always, if you enjoy the podcast and you're able, we would be thrilled to have you join the flock by going to ourhenhouse.org slash donate and signing up for $10 a month or $100 a year. Or you are welcome to make any size donation that feels comfortable to you. You can also support us by leaving a glowing review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Like us on Facebook, where you can also leave a fabulous review, and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Our Hen House. Join our online community at ourhenhouse.mn.co and spread the word about the podcast to friends and family. The Mighty Networks platform, which again is at ourhenhouse.mn.co, is available to everyone, regardless of whether or not you're a Flock member, though we do have a lot of robust information behind the paywall of the Flock section. So do consider that when you're considering joining the flock. And if you already support us, thank you so much. Remember, if you become a flock member, you also get bonus content each week, an opportunity to have a one-on-one session with me, Jasmine, 
And you also get access to that aforementioned fabulous flock bonus area of Mighty Networks. If you donate $250 or more, we'll also send you a pretty fantastic Our Hen House brass pin. So thank you so much to those of you who support us. Thank you to my co-host, Marianne Sullivan, to Vicki Beachler for her work in producing this podcast, to composer Michael Heron for the music. Thanks to Eric Montgomery of the Podcast Haven for his work editing the podcast, to our production assistant, Jocelyn Martinez, and to Veronica Kalinska, who designed our logo and other graphics. I'm Jasmine Singer, and I'll talk to you next week. <laughs>